and we are live to the platform that seemingly I could be talking to myself here in the palatial fat cave, but the chat feed would indicate otherwise. And there's plenty of you out there commenting already. So thank you very much for joining me on Thursday, the 12th of November. It's half past 8 p.m. Sydney time. Christ knows what time it is where you are, but I thank you for devoting that time to this live stream. And if you've got any questions in the motoring domain or hey, about anything else, let me have it in the comments feed. I love to hear from you. It's a great way to interact live with the audience, which is something, you know, you miss out on, don't you, when it's just pre-recorded package after pre-recorded package after pre-recorded package. And I really do appreciate the feedback that I've been getting online and sort of offline as well about these live streams. Uh, Plenty of people seem to like them. So, you know, you can recuse yourself from the family momentarily. They might thank you for it. Uh, they will thank you for it. Trust me. <laughs> you know, lockdown 2020, etc. Right? And what a week it's been, incidentally. Hasn't it just been a cracker? The Orange Goblin will leave the White House soon. Who, th- who would have thunk it? Joe Biden, president-elect. I thought he was very cruel during the week. Very cruel indeed. Humiliating the outgoing president by speaking in complete sentences. When he did that, I thought, far too soon for the American population. I don't know if they can handle it. I'd be waiting weeks if I was Mr. Biden before I used a semicolon in any form, in print or in the spoken word. Just, I, I just wouldn't want to set off something in the tinder keg, the powder keg, the tinder box, whatever, to mix metaphors, that is the United States at the moment. I've taken the unprecedented step of actually planning a show. Jesus, that's almost like being back on radio, isn't it? You know, I thought we'd talk about some of the things that have happened this week, like Ford in Australia has killed the Endura, which is like a hastily rebadged Ford Edge from Canada, Politistan. Who knew? I had so many comments from that package about I, I had no idea they even did an Endura. What is that sort of thing? And now I won't miss it at all because I never knew ex- it existed and, hey, now it doesn't. So that says something about Ford's marketing in Australia, doesn't it, Just GMSV, Genetically Modified Special Vehicles, has launched the Silverado. It's kind of Holden 2.0, isn't it? It's like... Who's going to buy it? Like after the initial rush of Silverado files out there, Silverado aficionados who've just been, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting, and now, you know, they can finally dump 140 grand on a Silverado. Who's going to be buying that car in like 12 months' time? Like, come on. And right-hand drive conversion at Walkinshaw, which is, Walkinshaw is like the HSB factory, which is a bumper bar factory in Clayton in Victoria sort of thing. So I don't know how well those cars are going to go in five to 10 years because aftermarket conversions, like even factory integrated aftermarket conversions with a high level shop like Walkinshaw, they're never perfect, are they? The thing wasn't designed with right-hand drive in mind. And same thing with the Ram, same joint doing the conversion here in Australia. Yes. So... Let's see how that goes. I don't know if you heard this one either. The South Australian government is swimming against the global green tide and they're planning an EV tax. And they're not doing this for any reason other than to compensate 
themselves for what they see as the money that will be lost as uh, fuel excise, like fuel excise that does not get paid by the owners of EVs. I don't think there's 2,000 EV owners in South Australia, and yet they're on the front foot with the tax. And riddle me this, when did the last factory close in Australia, right? When was the last car factory closure? It's a few years ago now, right? And the luxury car tax, still in place, baby. And also the uh, import tariff, that's, that's still payable, at least on cars that come from regions where we don't have the free trade agreement. So governments, I think you'd agree, super quick to impose these taxes and yet very slow indeed to remove them when they're no longer required, when they no longer serve any purpose. So what's going on there? If you've got a view on that, let me know in the chat because it's just scrolling up there now and uh, it's very great. It's, it's very great. <laughs> I'm almost literate. It's very great to hear from you this evening. And before we get into that chat, okay, MG has launched Australia's cheapest SUV, the ZS EV. MG ZS EV. That's easy to remember, isn't it? It's 40-something grand, about 17000 bucks more expensive than the petrol equivalent. So still a hefty premium, but Australia's, let's be kind, most affordable EV. Would you buy one? That's a good question, isn't it? These premium EVs, I've actually got a report coming out tomorrow on the platform, a pre-recorded jobby, about the philosophy of pre, uh, you know, premium EVs and are they, is that the way for the industry to go or should they, I won't give it away. It's coming up tomorrow. So look out for that. I'll publish it in the morning. You know, when I drag myself out of bed at the crack of 11 or whenever, I'll publish that. You can let me know. You can let me have it if you think I'm wrong. And you will think I'm wrong if you're one of those followers of Electric Jesus. You know, you're just can't wait to kiss his ring and get yourself into a Model S or something. And before we get into the chat, one more thing, okay? I, I have to give a quick shout out to a loyal viewer named Anne Mickelson, because I gave a shout out to Tone about the Shemax, right? Which is just brilliant, okay? There are some brilliant members of the audience. You should be, you know, contributing, should be copywriting for advertising agencies and things of that nature, where they would pay you properly for this kind of really robust creativity that is hard to find, right? There's not too many people who can come up with the Shemax as an alternative name for the BT50, to match its twin under the skin, the D-Max, okay? The his and hers, Ute for Western Sydney and places like that, okay? Anne Mickelson has done me proud as well because, you know, a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, I came up with the perfect mighty king, the King Dick 32 and 27 millimetre. Just listen to this. That's just, I'll, I'll do it again, okay? It's just beautiful. The mighty King Dick ratcheting podger. Is that not a thing of beauty and a joy to behold? Just right. I think you'd agree literally and metaphorically in lectures and other forums as well. Just right to drive the frigging point home. Don't you think? Right. Anyway, I thought this was just beautiful the way it was. But amazingly enough, 
Anne Mickelson has made this device even more beautiful than it intrinsically is by giving it a better name. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Roger Podgerson. If that is just not 13 points out of a possible 10 for naming excellence, I really don't know what is. So, Anne Mickelson, thank you very much for that. I'm going to steal that mercilessly, frequently, and occasionally give you due credit for it. So that's, hey, that's the best I can do. I'm a journalist. I'm going to sleep okay. So there's that. Now, let us get into some of these questions from you. I'm picking them at random, you know, in radio. Incidentally, if you're hosting a show, you'd have at least one poor bastard out on the other side of the glass in the studio who would be filleting the calls and filleting the chat and running in with printed sheets of paper and going, oh, John, this one's nice. You might want to do this one. <laughs> Let's do it a little rougher around the edges tonight. I, I do like that authenticity because it removes the veneer of sanitization. Okay, now I've picked Andrew Stewart here. He says, a real name, Sw swimming against the tide there of YouTube as well, right, of online generally. Anyway, Andrew Stewart says, Hi, John, what do you think of the new i30 N-Line sedan? And do you think they will replace the Fastback N with the sedan N? The Fastback N is a thing of beauty, and it's a completely different animal. Like an i30 N is in a different universe to the N-Line, all right? And... I'm torn because I, I love that fastback N in particular. The hatch would be more practical, but the N is sexier. And that performance car is just, it hits several benchmarks for me, okay? Because it's the kind of car that I could drive to the limit, okay? Whereas, you know, if you drive a BMW M3 or M4 or something of that nature, it's always better than you. If you take it to a track, it's better than you, unless you've got that spooky software, right? But an i30N, you can actually take it to a track. And if you're half decent as a driver, you can get it up to the limit and feel like you're thrashing its tits off. In reality, it's still got plenty in reserve. And a good driver could probably go, I don't know, half a second quicker than you every lap. And you think half a second's not much, but hey, in a 20 lap race, it's 10 seconds between you and the good driver when the chequered flag goes down like that and you're still trying to get onto the straight, okay? So it is a big difference, but that car is fantastic. The, the N-Line is kind of exciting because that's a responsive car to drive normally in traffic. The problem with cars like I-30Ns and you know vehicles with performance of that nature is that if you're on a public road and you are having a real crack in a car like that, you are driving two ways that I don't endorse, which would be A, illegally, and B, antisocially, all right, because they're properly fast. And they are a bit hard on the, on the edge of being too hard to live with, you know what I mean? So if you're a performance nutcase, then yeah, absolutely, great, I30N. But N-Line is completely different different to N and the uh, sedan N, which is like the, uh, the sedan N line, which is like the, the uh, Elantra, they've called it I-30 now, right? So Elantra used to be the sedan version of I-30 kind of thing. Now they're wrapping it all up and just calling it an I-30. And the N line is going to be a hatch and a sedan. And I think they're both, you know, really nice responsive cars that you can live with that deliver very spirited performance, but they're not an N. You know what I mean? So that's kind of what I think about it there. Uh, Tim Marks. Now, 
Tim says, John, what are your thoughts on touchscreens replacing dials for basic car controls like climate, radio, setting, etc.? I think it's dangerous and I'm surprised manufacturers are going this way. I'm not surprised manufacturers are going this way because, hey, it's cheaper. You just have a touchscreen and you program it several different ways. And when you've got the, I don't know, when you've got the audio control screen invoked you can have touchscreen buttons wherever the program says because the whole screen responds to being touched and the software underlying that tells it where the buttons are right and it just interprets where your finger goes like that or if you've got roger podgerson in the car with you you can just press it like that which is quite satisfying as well let me tell you the problem of course is Here's me driving down the road. And to use a touchscreen, i got to go, uh, and press the button like that. I've got to get missile lock, like strict visual lock on the button to activate it because it's not tactile in any way. It's not tactile so that I can identify it just by moving my finger over there or just have a glance and confirm and go back to the road, right? Mission critical, keep looking at the road. And the other thing is, I can't tell if I've actually pressed it because they typically don't provide you with haptic feedback. I mean, my phone gives me haptic feedback when I touch the keys. So I fail to see why haptic feedback is so hard for a car maker. And frankly, all of that software stuff in cars, if Samsung did the control architecture like that, right, in in your phone or Apple did the control architecture in the manner of a car on your phone, you would never buy one of those products again because cars are seriously behind the eight ball when it comes to all of that supplementary fluff that people who never got themselves technically trained refer to as tech. So yeah, I am absolutely with you on this. Those touchscreen buttons are not only impractical and inconvenient and hard to use, but they're also dangerous unless you've got sort of supreme discipline about when it's safe to get your eyes over there and actually use them, which is usually when you're stopped at a red light, because at every other time, you know, even at 60 k's an hour, it's 60 k's an hour is like 17 meters a second. So every three seconds, it's an Olympic pool. Every six seconds, it's a football field. And if your eyes are off the road for three seconds while you're mucking around with this or that, then that's an Olympic swimming pool that you have not seen anything develop in. Because when you're looking there, you can't sort of have peripheral vision on there because vision's hopeless at that. You know, when you're when you're driving down the road like this, you know, and your vision is locked here, like I'm looking straight at you driving down the road, you can see a red warning light go on on the dash because it just flicks at you and you go, oh, that's bad, right? But you can't look at the dashboard and then just see a kid step out over here. And that's why you've got to have discipline because car makers make these systems available over here and the window is open for distraction and all you have to do is poke your head through, right? And then that's just setting yourself up for the worst possible situation imaginable behind the wheel. So excellent question. Thank you very much. Um, let's keep going now. Uh, quasi one. Now that's more like it. Quasi one. That's an internet name, okay? What are your thoughts on Australian changing to driving on the right side of the road as Sweden did some years ago? Could it result in cheaper cars? Probably not. 
might result in more variety because, you know, brands like General Motors and Ford increasingly shying away from right-hand drive, left hand, driving on the left-hand side of the road, sitting on the right-hand side of the car like we do, Australia, okay? Um, it's a big deal, though, isn't it? Can you imagine how complex that would be from an infrastructure point of view? You'd have to re-engineer every intersection, every traffic light controlled intersection. You'd kind of have to turn all the signs around and you'd kind of have to turn all the light logic around. And you'd kind of have to turn all the freeways mirror reversed, wouldn't you? Because the on-ramps and off-ramps are all facing the wrong way inconveniently and then we'd have to train the public on on that and we'd have to say well what do we do with the dude who just bought his right hand drive whatever last year and that's going to potentially live for i don't know nine or ten years on the road before it becomes an average car australia right so are we really going to have a hodgepodge of left-hand drive and right-hand drive cars coexisting on the road for nine or ten years until natural attrition sorts all of that out. I, I just can't see that being a net benefit to society. And can you imagine how long, like look at how long it's taken to get the NBN up, right? This is an infrastructure program that is far more ambitious than that. We've got a dirty big country and not that many head of population per kilometre of road. And the cost would be out of control. And is there not something better? that we could spend that money on. So good question, Quasi, but, you know, I can't see it happening, mate. And is it worth doing just so we could have, I don't know, 1500 bucks off your next car? I don't see that being a reasonable trade-off. But I'd love to hear your view on that. So let me have it in the chat if you think I'm getting it wrong. What is it now? It's uh, just after quarter to nine. <laughs> Yes. Well, it is here. And if you're listening afterwards or watching afterwards, Christ knows, you know, I can't help you with that. Joseph Rowe now, another real namer. This is becoming a real thing. I do note in the chat that real named people have longer questions, obviously better thought out. They often use punctuation and sentences like Joe Biden. Anyway, Joseph Rowe now. Uh, I hate it when it flicks up like that, and I've, I've, I've promoted him, and now I've got to find him again. Joseph Rowe says, Subaru is pulling out the legacy sedan, Liberty, in Australia, before in Israel, out of Japan and Australia. The only place that it has it is Retardistan. Can you believe that? Well, yes, I can. I certainly can. The, the whole sedan thing, you know, the Liberty legacy whatever sedan sized segment which includes sonata and camry the only vehicle i can see kicking a goal in that segment globally is camry everything else is like a really nice car that just no one wants so i guess if you're a car maker and you want to have a finger in every pie you've got to field an entrant in that sort of mid-sized segment uh, sedan segment but you know i wouldn't be expecting to sell too many of them and by the same token i i've got a string of emails that stretch over the horizon from people going oh what's happening about this new outback i really can't wait and outback is liberty slash legacy slash b4 with a station wagon back and a little bit more ground clearance and, you know, slightly sexier in some ways to appeal to the popularity of SUVs, okay? It's fundamentally just a legacy wagon jacked up a little bit. It's like the difference between Impreza 
and XV. Like Impreza is XV. Impreza Hatch is XV. XV's just got a little bit more ground clearance and slightly sexier this and that fluff, okay? But fundamentally, it's exactly the same car. So cars are over the cliff like this and SUVs, you can't stop them. That's just SUVs and utes, baby, driving the growth in the Australian car market and pretty much many other segments around the world as well. That's just how this works. Go figure. You can't tell people to buy stuff logically, right? Most people want a sedan. Most, sorry, I'll start that again. Most people want an SUV, but they actually need a nice mid-sized sedan or a mid-sized wagon, you know? But you can't tell the market what to buy. If you're a car maker, you've just got to provide the cars that the market will buy. So, hey, they're stuck with that. Brendan Terrett now says, Sweden only got away with it because they converted just before mass car adoption took off. They also had many imported left-hand drive cars on the road. No way would be worth doing in Oz. Yes, I agree with you on that, Brendan. And while we're talking Scandinavia... I do like a good Scandinavian masseuse, too. We're not going to talk about that, though. We're going to talk about this. Um, what are we going to talk about? We're going to... T- <laughs> it's here somewhere. We are going to talk about this electric vehicle tax, right? Because in Oslo, right? In Oslo, and you know, they, they basically gave EVs all these incentives, right? Like massive government incentives. There are like 200,000 EVs in Sweden, okay? And, the, and basically the incentives cost the Swedish government about 1.9 billion US dollars. That was in 2018, for about 200,000 EVs on the road. And what they basically did was they made cars like an e-Golf cheaper than an internal combustion Golf. And you could park them for free in Oslo and charge them for free. And to get from wherever you were going to the city and back, you didn't pay any tolls on the toll roads, if memory serves. That kind of government incentive. They removed essentially what we would call the GST, which I think over there is a higher rate as well. So artificially reduced the price and added all these other incentives. And then in Australia, the exact opposite, South Australia in particular, this is from Tony Sander, okay? I got this uh, today. He says, loving the live streams. Thank you, Tony. Not sure if you're doing one tonight. Well, appear to be. Um, but here's a Dorothy Dixer for you. Um, Dorothy Dixer is a question I make up, dude. Come on. Though I suspect you may have already fielded emails from several viewers asking the same or similar question. Yes. In its budget handed down a couple of days ago, the South Australian government proposed a road user charge, i.e. a tax on EVs from the 1st of July 2021. And just to contextualise this like a proper news story, the ABC said the state's treasurer, Rob Lucas, said two other Australian jurisdictions are interested in following his government's lead within 12 months. As part of his state budget yesterday, Mr Lucas announced the South Australian government planned to charge electric vehicle drivers for using the road just as other motorists pay the fuel excise duty. He argued that as electric vehicles replace petrol and diesel vehicles over time, causing fuel excise revenue to disappear, a road user charge on non-petrol vehicles was needed to replace it. Yes, you asshole. 
It would raise about one million bucks per year starting in July 2021, said Mr. Lucas in his budget speech. Now back to the questioner, Tony Sander, okay? Tony says the South Australian government claims this is necessary to ensure that EV owners pay their fair share towards maintaining the state's roads. The argument being that fuel excise charged on petrol, diesel, LPG is used for this purpose and that EV drivers are getting a free ride on the basis that electricity is not subject to fuel excise. However, my understanding, this is Tony's understanding, is that fuel excise is collected at a federal level rather than a state level. Moreover, only a fraction of fuel excise collected is spent on roads. Is my understanding of fuel excise correct? Yes, it is. Excise was initially introduced on fuel to pay for road upgrades, but now it just filters into consolidated revenue to pay for the bureaucracy and other examples of your tax dollars at work. And you pay GST on the excise, so, hey, that's a tax on a tax. Well done there, government. Uh, Tony says, also keen to hear your general thoughts on the South Australian government's EV road user charge and on EV usage taxes in general. Well, obviously, initially, EV usage taxes are just going to be kind of irrelevant because how many EVs are actually on the road? So at the moment, it's nothing. The impact on fuel excise is minimal. And we've got to decide what we want to do, right, as a society. We have to have an actual rational debate about EVs. And do we want to support them? And are they actually green? And how do we want to support them? Because I don't really know that it's such a hot idea to have someone who's struggling to make ends meet you know, someone middle to lower income people in this nation subsidising someone buying a Model S because the virtue signalers think that's a great idea. Because frankly, if you can buy a Model S, you're a rich dude and you don't need help, okay? So what do we do to promote EVs? Because at the moment, batteries are expensive and this makes the vehicles very expensive. Like the MG ZS EV, which was launched this week, Australia's cheapest EV, it's like 44 grand, I think, and they say it'll go 370 k's with a full regen braking uh, in traffic sort of thing, but probably less than that on the highway, okay, but still considerable range, and 44 grand's not excessive for a reasonably large SUV wagon style of thing, not unlike a Kona Electric Okay, so that's not a bad proposition, but it's still 17 grand more expensive than the petrol one, right? And do we want EVs on the road? Are they actually socially altruistic? And I can think of two cases for that. The first case being air pollution in our cities, because if you've got an EV, you are not contributing tailpipe emissions to the general pollution profile of cities. But in a sense, you are exporting the pollution back to the power station because we burn a hell of a lot of coal. So there's that. And the other case, obviously, is energy security for Australia, because we are highly dependent on the supply of liquid fuels from overseas. And this Uh, supply chain is very fragile and I think if 2020 has taught us anything it's that things that we take for granted such as supply logistics chains 
can be upended by things that we didn't expect, okay? So it wouldn't take very much for something to spark off an interruption to the liquid fuel supply to Australia. And if we did that, it would be a frigging disaster. And it would be a bigger disaster than going to Coles or Woolworths and not being able to find pasta or toilet paper, okay? A much bigger deal than that. So we'd have to have this rational, fact-based, expert-led debate about how do we define a green objective and then how do we incentivize it if it's not economically rational. And this is a big problem in a society that, frankly, is following the American model, insofar as I can see, of divorcing itself from those things, facts and experts and science and things of that nature. You know, to solve these problems, these big problems for society, we need the biggest brains and we need them to be highly incentivized and motivated and we don't need a whole bunch of loud assholes with basically no education but a platform just shouting them down all the time and, you know, asking for them to be, I don't know, beheaded and burnt at the stake and other extreme things of this nature, such as when and I'm I'm basically using that as an example because Bill Barr in America uh, famously called for Dr. Fauci to be I think it was beheaded, you know, and that kind of thing is just outrageous to me. And exactly the same thing would happen if a rational, qualified person said, you know what, I don't think, if he stood up and said, I don't think this is a worthwhile use of consolidated revenue. I think it would be better, you know, we'd get better bang for our buck if we did blah, whatever blah is. And a vested interest nutbag virtue signaling group could easily then just leap in and just loudly take that dude down when all he's doing is presenting a highly educated fact-based opinion, right? So that's what's tragic about the 21st century in my view and why it's very hard to decide what to do to promote things like EVs because the rest of the world is going subsidies, yeah, okay? And South Australian treasurer is, Rob Lucas, is going, subsidies, no. In fact, let's tax those bastards because they're getting away with it. And the other thing I'd point out here is that if you are buying an EV, like let's say you buy a Kona Electric for 70-odd grand, which is $25,000-ish more than the internal combustion equivalent, okay? What you do if you, if you buy that vehicle is, yeah, I know you're not paying the fuel excise, but you just paid about two and a half thousand bucks worth of additional GST that the internal combustion dude didn't pay, okay? And you're also paying additional stamp duty for the first registration of that vehicle because that is based on the price, right? So you're paying proportionally more stamp duty. So you're probably up for, I don't know, three or maybe three and a half thousand bucks worth of additional tax contribution to get your EV onto the road. And I don't believe that that has been sort of faithfully reproduced in the South Australian Treasurer's version of events about why this is such a friggin' good idea. And let's not forget that if a bunch of governments are subsidising EVs around the world and the South Australian government introduces the exact opposite uh, fiscal sort of measure, which would be to tax them, then one of those parties, the subsidisers or the taxes, 
one of them has to be wrong. It's kind of like the pursuit policy, isn't it? Because New South Wales still does high-risk police pursuits. And just about every other jurisdiction in the nation has decided at the highest level that these are unacceptable, socially dangerous, justice is not served, and the public interest is not served by them, okay? But in New South Wales... They're exactly right. And I'd suggest there's no salient difference between New South Wales and the rest of the nation. And if that's the case, then one of those regulatory positions about pursuits has to be wrong. It has to be. One of the, it's, it can't, they can't both be right because they're mutually frigging exclusive. So, you know, riddle me that. It's kind of that. I don't really know what to do about it, except that we need to convene an impartial panel of the best brains. Like, let's not get someone representing the coal industry on board, you know, or ScoMo, which is kind of the same thing. Now, let us go back to the chat, of which there is a heap. Here's an internet name. Glass Half Full. I like your attitude. Say hello to your parents, Mr. and Mrs. Half Full, won't you? I can say from personal experience, I was burning 150 bucks a week in fuel. I bought the Ionic EV in June and have 16,000 Ks on it, which is what, June, July, August, September, October, November. So that's about 3,000 Ks a month. That's above average. Pretty good. Um, spent on average six to 10 bucks to charge up my EV. Will never go back. Yeah, well, I've been running this experiment as well, right? I've been driving the Kona Electric, and I've been driving that for about 6,000 Ks now, and I've got the fast charger just over there on that wall, and it'll charge the thing up from essentially dead flat overnight, and it is much cheaper to charge it up, and I have not missed going to the friggin' filling station, not once. Nostalgia factor there, minus infinity just doesn't exist the two-for-one kit cat offer just not enough to make me pine for the filling station you've, you've got to be kidding and i quite like driving the vehicle as well because it's kind of fast to 50 and it's reasonably satisfying to drive it's not an i30n and i could buy an i30n and have 25 grand in the bank so hey i'm torn but yeah, I get it. I get that there is a practical dimension. However, the additional cost up front makes these vehicles very, very hard to pay back, almost impossible to pay back. Like the repayment period is like 300,000 Ks or something. So it's not economically rational to buy one, even though you can be saving money on the fuel. I get that you're saving money on the fuel week to week, but you did pay rather a lot to acquire the vehicle. So there's that. Um, let's keep going now. I've got um, a comment, a response to Glass Half Full. That reminds me of LPG. This is from a dude named N, obviously an i30 performance car fan. It says, this reminds me of LPG when it first came out. It was pennies. Now it's used... Uh, more it's not as cheap if everyone switched to electric cars no doubt they would get extra revenue well yeah they would but we've already got the most expensive electricity in the developed world or so it seems like electricity is bloody expensive in australia so someone is going to be making some money out of you fueling your car up on electrons and yeah i figure they will figure out a way to tax them eventually but they, there's got to be critical mass there's like tw 
25 years ago, we, we saw the first hybrids. Remember the first hybrids? They looked like cockroaches. They looked like the kinds of vehicles that Captain Kirk from Star Trek would drive when he was on shore leave on Earth, right? They just, you had to be a special kind of person to buy one. And fast forward 25 years, like, it's still only one in 35 new vehicles is a hybrid. The acquisition rate, the proliferation into the car market of these vehicles is extremely slow. It's going to be forever, statistically, until electric vehicles are a salient part of the fleet. And let's not forget that even if every electric vehicle sold today, every vehicle sold today, sorry, was electric, the average car in Australia is still about nine years old, so it's going to take like nine years or something, whatever, for the average vehicle to be electric. Know what I mean? Like, it's it's not going to be overnight. There's 12 million cars on the road, and there's like a million motor vehicles being sold annually. Do the math. It's going to take forever. Not all those motor vehicles are cars. A lot of them are delivery vans and utes and four-wheel drives and vehicles of that nature that just do not and heavy trucks which do not suit being electric despite the protestations of electric jesus to the contrary like still haven't seen the tesla semi out there on the road doing its thing it's not being sold as far as i know and the cyber truck is like a pipe dream so there's that now let us move on there's more i'm sure to be uh gotten through here Joseph Rowe said Hyundai's about to have a ute. Kia should try it sometime. Well, Hyundai's been strangely quiet on the ute in Australia. And this makes me think that this might not be the straightforward proposition that we had all hoped. And I'm torn about the Santa Cruz ute anyway, because it's like a unitary body construction jobby that's based on the Santa Fe loosely platform. Okay, so it's not like a Hyundai Hilux, okay? It's a completely different animal, and I wonder, really, how the Australian market would react to that. Certainly, it would be dissed, I think, by the Blue Singlet Brigade, because it will not do the things that a Hilux can do, such as carry a ton in the back and tow three and a half tons if you completely... Um, if you completely disregard safety considerations and practicality, you can kind of tow, you know, three and a half tons with many of those conventional, you know, uh, ladder framed four wheel drive utes. I don't think the Santa Cruz ute is going to be like that. I'm not sure how expensive it's going to be either if it debuts in Australia. And there's been no concrete whispers even about bringing it here. It's going to be exciting, blah, blah, blah. So I haven't heard anything like that. I don't know if there's a problem. I don't know if it's going to be America only, which would be a shame, but... I'm still undecided about how the Australian market would respond to this softer style of ute. I mean, if Tone can get away with calling the D-Max the She-Max, what are we going to do nickname-wise about a soft ute from Hyundai that can't do all that a Hilux or, you know, a Triton, whatever, can do, but might be nicer to drive and might actually be the ute that Australian families need for the occasional trip to Bunnings and just shove a few bikes in the back and do a little bit of soft adventuring. Might be much more refined and a better drive than that, but don't know how the market's going to react. So yeah, Hyundai has got a ute. Kia could latch onto that, and but I don't understand exactly how that works either, because Kia could sell 
a van, couldn't they? They could sell a Kia sort of rebadged iLoad, call it whatever, um, in the manner that Mitsubishi sells the Express, which is a rebadged Renault Traffic, right? Only their mothers can tell them apart. I don't see why Kia can't do that, but there must be something in the fine print that prevents them. I, I don't know. I've got an unpronounceable combination of numbers and letters here. It says, do you think that in-car GPS is superior to phone GPS in terms of, one, reception outside major cities, two, ability to help you navigate, is there a reason to choose a car with GPS over one without? No, there's not. In-car GPS is a fraud. I mean, it's okay if you don't have a smartphone, and it's okay if you just want to look at the map scrolling over there, which you should not do because you should be looking at the road. But when it comes actually to navigation, like let's think about the logic of navigation, right? Because sometimes you know that you need to go to 12 Smith Street, Annandale, or wherever, right? So you know the precise... It's so humid lately. We've had a bug explosion. It's like it's like two rats humping in a wool sock in the fat cave at the moment. You've no idea the sacrifices I'm making to be here. Tarzan couldn't take this humidity. Anywho, where were we? Thinking about navigation. If you know the precise address, then... It just type it into the in-car navigation and it goes calculating and then figures it out and takes you there. And you get the voice guidance and all that stuff. But sometimes you're in a strange place and you don't know where you want to go, but you know what you want. You might need to get your nails done or you might need a vegan restaurant or you might need to know where the vegan restaurants are so that you can avoid them. Or you might need to know the nearest gun shop location or the nearest strip club. Google Maps knows all of these things off the bat. Try typing in. I did try this, not on in-car nav, but you can get your phone plugged into, you know, Android Auto or something and just go nearest strip club and five or six locations. They just, Google knows everything. So... I'd suggest that for this functionality alone, the semantics of search, the phone is far superior. And the other thing is, car dealers have turned bending you over, over GPS in-car upgrades, they've turned that into an art form, right? It's like they can promise you seemingly endless free GPS upgrades when you're a prospect, like you haven't bought the car yet. Oh, yes, we get, well, we could do that free. And then there's terms and conditions that make my show preparation look like a farce because they're in 18 point and only one page long. However, you know, the, the upgrades are not forthcoming, or if they are, it's going to be like a thousand bucks. Or they have a tanty with the provider of the GPS head unit in the car, and they're no longer on speaking terms, and the whole thing falls over, and no updates are forthcoming, and yet there's a hundred new roads in your area, and your car will never know all about them. And for all these reasons, in car GPS is just a heap better. And, you know, GPS is kind of like this all right you you need to understand that there's an integration thing like the department of defense in the united states manages the gps system which is the navstar satellite constellation very cleverly worked out satellites evenly sort of spaced in longitude but inclined at some angle 60 degrees i think to the equator and six orbital planes evenly spaced in longitude and five or six satellites or something in each plane so that there's always multiple satellites over the horizon really clever shit 
Like, and it's been functional without a hiccup since the 80s, since the first Gulf War, okay? Um, so that's what provides the signals that determine the position. But then Google Maps actually needs cell phone connectivity to the data network to overlay the digital maps. And you need Google to do its mad search algorithm to find nearest strip club or nearest mechanical workshop or whatever, the nearest nail salon, whatever. And for, for this reason, it's kind of a bit of a bastard outside cell phone coverage, right? Because your, your GPS chip in your phone can tell where you are in coordinate terms, latitude and longitude, but it's really not that helpful if you can't overlay the digital maps and get the search and navigation functionality working. So if you are going to go beyond cell phone range, it really does make sense to get a proper sort of off-road remote area navigation solution. Or you can download at least the digital maps that suit that area. You can preemptively download and load them up with Google Maps and they'll function, but that's only if you're prepared, right? Like if you're channeling Lord Baden-Powell or something. So anyway, that's how that works. And I'd suggest that in-car GPS is like all other in-car tech. It's like the clunkiest possible version of that tech with an abject failure to acknowledge that you and I already have a relationship with Apple and or Google and we just want to take that into the car. We don't want to also have a relationship with a car maker OS we just want the phone seamlessly to integrate into the car and become the car. See, I want my phone to not only be my car key, all right? I don't mind having a separate key, but I want it to be my unique identifier to the car. So I walk up to the car and it functions as a proximity key and unlocks. And it says, ah, that's the fat dude's phone. So I'll do the fat dude's sport mode not comfort mode when when the missus gets in the car you might her phone might say comfort mode and might go for ambient lighting light and fluffy whatever and i might go for the hardcore i want the all the sports settings in the car and the seat position could just happen for me and it could happen for her and all of that stuff right and I don't see why this is so hard because when I look at all the things my phone does for me now, like I don't need to buy a boxing ring timer when I work out because I just go to my frigging phone and I've got like a $5 app for boxing timer pro and 10 rounds, 30 seconds on, 15 seconds break, ladies and gentlemen. So why is it so difficult to... Why? Like for the past five years or something, you've had to put a USB cable in just to invoke Android Auto and Google Maps. And we're only just getting around to making it wireless now. Is that a soapbox I see before me? Anyway, let us move on. Um, because Theo V says, my advice, download Here Maps, re the old Nokia Maps, which allows for full Australian Maps, Australia-wide, to be sorted on the device. Now, look, I'm sure there's digital mapping solutions that you can uh, provide for your phone and you can just cache them on the phone and they'll do the navigation for you in these kinds of places. That does make absolute sense to me. Anyway, um, Craig McIntosh now says, John, can you... Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to explain the whole Ming Mole phenomenon because that is really interesting, right? And see, 
I think the industry deserves, I'm just getting a little distracted here because um, Ms. working for you. I hope I'm not just talking to myself. Anyway, the Ming Mole thing. Okay. What, what deserves satirization and anything that um, the satirization committee approves, right? I satirize the shit. But if I go to any car dealer, any car salesman, any senior eggs talking about, okay? And when I think about the reforms that we've uh, made, use thing and the resignation of uh, Roger Ailes and um, the, the guy who hosted The Factor, that really did uh, change, behaviour changed. If I talk about the Ming Mole to industry insiders, they know exactly what the Ming Mole is and they are still fully operating. 60s or 70s. It was certainly around in the 80s. And Ming was paint protection. Okay, it was baby, right? And the person doing the selling was a young, well-endowed car is an endurance process, right? It's this huge, unbelievable endurance process where you've got to dis- given you this great discount that the sales dude can't approve. But really, he's just closed. Cessary's chick who came to be known as the Ming Mole, and she's getting you to nod and go, yeah. And all of those reforms that have taken place in society, of all of the reforms you don't need, right, using sex appeal. So rather than rail against this and say with very senior executives in top 10 car makers, who I won't name, who've kind of looked at me and said, there's no way, is let's make up a world where the Ming Mole is... The car industry's got the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. So why can't Ming Mole Association, representing their, their various needs in Canberra, the, the grade of buttons on and the tensile strength of that, which needs to be very carefully thought out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because if you did have a legitimate profession in pain protection with the blouse half undone, then... They would need that representative council, right? So it's so spectacularly wrong. I thought, let's just make up a word where being an Australasian Ming Mole Association and all of that stuff, and these girls could just be carefree in their time off report and that report on this fine channel. So essentially, that's how the Ming Mole thing started. Like the Ming Mole, I did not invent them. It really is time for the industry to stop shoveling coal into the boilers, you know, and powering is a way of taking it on rather than, you know, inserting Mr. Podgerson here. So there's that. Work on that. Um, anyway, Matt, sorry, I was just about to do you. Terrible. I had a guy, I had a guy, a very entertaining chap, Brian Culp, you know, hate comments, so authentic. Quote, im unsuscribing bantering idiot fuck off no punctuation except a comma in exactly the wrong place i don't really know i don't know how the whole um, working thing you know viewing thing works on live streams 31 so you must be able to play it back before it's actually finished so i don't know how youtube does that caches the video and makes it stream please do let me know because you know i'm just giving up my best shot here and uh you know dusting off the old rusty talkback radio thing because i am looking forward to the offline version of this so i can learn what a ming mole was <laughs> fair enough mate dave martin says john the feed but if it is it's probably just a consequence of our great friends telstra 
and then look if that is the case and i can see an error message there um but I, and I do see the scrolling symbol too, which is a bit, until we get to an hour, because that's kind of the agreement. And then I will sign off. And thank you very much for your participation. And really sorry, I don't know. Deliver it that way. I might do a quick speed test. That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? .NET, yes. Yeah, that's pretty slow. I'm only getting almost ready for the critical upload test. There's really no excuse for the stream be family card or Subaru Forester, Forester S, as I can get a nice demo for 43k, which will be 33k after Forester's a good car. It's full-size spare, symmetrical all-wheel drive. It's got all the safety tech. Safety tech's a little intrusive. You can accommodate all of that stuff on driving fundamentals. Big tick for the Forester. And also, Subaru's great if there's a problem. Like, in the manner of Volkswagen's not that way. Subaru is. Subaru is really good. They're up there with Hyundai, Kia, Subaru. Um, they're not bastards. Okay. And it's terrible that just acknowledge it and you buy from one of them if you are half smart. So David Jenkins now. No, I keep this error message does keep popping up and I have no frigging control over it. I do hate that. It's one of the, I wish, you know, soldier on in choppy land, whatever. Decker Lundquist now says, John, we are only getting in techo glitch of this nature. Um, I might kind of leave it there if that's all the same with you, because we have been going nearly for an hour now, you know, being one, a reformed nerd. Nerdy Andy said, this, everyone, is why Netflix shouldn't be the benchmark for a nation's internet. Internet is a stupid idea. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think um, I think our former Prime Minister, when he was the, when he was the communication, POV. If it's Telstra and you are using their Gen 2 modem, have a look at the front panel light. If it's now blue, about the pathetic alleged quality of this stream. I am going to end it here. I'd like to thank you for soldiering on. If you have indeed soldiered, you are still soldiering on there. Thank you very much for your time. And I'd look forward to a healthier stream. It almost sounds like we're at the U at Kidney Stone. Thanks very much for your time. Thursday, the 12th of November. It's just clocked over 9.30 and... Uh, Hope that. See you soon. Thanks a lot.